Good podcast. It's Houston, and I'm super excited to release this episode of the podcast for you. As you know, we don't do a lot of interviews on the Superstory podcast. Primarily, that's because we want to focus on value, and we feel that the typical podcast interview just doesn't deliver the value that it should or it needs to deliver. So uh, today, though, we're going to break that rule and give you an interview that we did with Jeff Gomez. Uh, if you've never heard of Jeff, he is a transmedia superstar. When I first started to lean into the transmedia space, Jeff's work and his philosophies really helped shape a lot of my early thoughts and a lot of my early strategies around the space. He's the dude that got me excited uh, to do transmedia multi-platform work, and that obviously led to me developing the Superstory model. So, uh, uh, also, I teach transmedia design at a couple different universities, and his TED Talk is always required viewing. So, Jeff's a deep, introspective dude. I like to call him the transmedia philosopher. So, I really hope you enjoy this episode of the podcast. Here it is. Welcome everybody to the new episode of the Super Story Vidcast. It's going to be a super special episode, no pun intended, uh, because we are joined today by Mr. Jeff Gomez. I know him as a transmedia guru. Uh, you may know him uh, from such projects, Men in Black, Avatar, Halo, Pirates of the Caribbean, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. He's done a zillion things. Uh, that are all wildly interesting to nerds like me and millions of other people. Uh, a widely respected guy in the industry and uh, super have uh, super happy to have you on the show today. Thanks for coming on, Jeff. Thank you, Houston. This is great to be here. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, my, my, my first question uh, uh, has to do with just how you've been making it through quarantine how how has that been for you because i know you're based in new york just what's it been like well geez Houston, you're starting on a bummer yeah. um, <laughs> um guys this is um you know it, it is uh it, it is the single most uh, uh difficult challenge uh i think that we have uh faced as a, a city um, and um, and uh, certainly uh, uh, personally for, for me it, it is way up there in, in terms of of how uh, difficult this has been and um, how deeply sad it's been. There's enormous tragedy. I live in the heart of the city. I'm in Chelsea, Manhattan. Um, uh, we are adjacent to. Uh, my co-op is adjacent to uh, uh, projects buildings, so uh, we see what's going on with uh, uh, people who have less than us uh, every day. Um, uh, there are a number of uh, services in, in the area that are, are trying to assist the homeless and, and people who have uh, hunger issues. And that's wonderful, but also it's extraordinarily tense because um, uh, people are angry. Um, uh, and, uh, and people who live at the lowest rungs in this city are, um, are used to uh, people being around to, to kind of assist them and they're not here. Uh, and that creates a, a real edge here. 
So, um, uh, you know, on top of all of that, I'm trying to hold a company together, a sure. production company that's involved in, in several uh, different kinds of projects, uh, some of which are, are kind of spinning, you know, um, and, uh, and so it's, uh, it's tricky. Yeah, you were talking about um, holding projects together, and that's, that's a really interesting subject uh, in this time that we're in. Uh, I, I see that you have been able to develop and, and be involved in some uh, new uh, cool projects coming up. How, how did that develop before uh, COVID-19, or has your phone been ringing, or have you been uh, reaching out to people during this time and making any headway? Guys, um, uh, th- this is actually the 20th anniversary of Starlight Runner. Um, oh, wow. So you're talking to me on our birthday. Oh, congratulations. Years. Happy birthday. And, yeah. uh, and one of the wonderful things about being around this long is that if uh, uh, someone needs something kind of new and strange, they've always known to come to us. <laughs> and new and strange is, is necessary right now. So, so it's actually in that respect a kind of exciting time. Uh, there were a number of projects that we were involved with, for example, that had to do with uh, immersive uh, experiences, like installations and things like that. Uh, now, um, uh, some of them are coming to us and saying, is there, is there a possibility to bring that immersive experience online somehow? Hmm. Um, uh, interactive theater uh, was going to be done in, in theaters. Uh, now, is it possible somehow for that to, to happen uh, through a, a kind of Zoom-like interface? Um, uh, we are, um, uh, 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 we've been pursuing audio as in podcasting and audio drama. And of course, that is uh, uh, booming right now. Um, it's becoming a multi-billion dollar uh, a kind of media platform, and it's accelerating uh, because of the, uh, the hunger for uh, new content. So uh, there have been uh, some interesting opportunities and, and some uh, interesting ways to apply our, our uh, collective imagination. I'll say it's interesting how, you know, the entertainment industry, there's, there's always been innovations that have kind of been birthed out of different needs and, and things like that. And, you know, we see how companies like Twitter are taking advantage of this and they're like, oh, we're just going to work from home from now on. You know, like we don't, we can change the way we're doing things, you know, and you've been developing content and, and uh, ways that fans are interacting with content for a long time. Um, how, how have you kind of seen how progressions in the industry is kind of, moved our interaction around and especially with the internet coming along a couple decades back with social media and how's your experience with fans kind of changed as you're developing over time based on the development of technology um i when when uh, when i was growing up as a kid um i loved uh, uh godzilla movies and the the kind of serious animation that was coming out of uh japan and in the mid-1970s, I had the opportunity to, uh, to live in Hawaii, which was much closer to Japan and, and received a lot more content. And, um, and what was so fascinating about uh, the way that the Japanese did things, this is even back in the 1970s, was they seemed to understand that if you loved their characters and their storylines, 
the worlds uh, that were depicted in these anime or even these live action kind of kid vid um, uh, science fiction series, um, they'll they'll give you more. They'll offer you more. Um, uh, so so their comics uh, were different from their TV shows, and 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 they they would get you the record album of the music of of the show. And, um, and they give you magazines uh, filled with all kinds of information about the characters and, and, and so forth. There was a media mix, as they put it uh, back then, that was actually honestly respectful of fans. Hmm. Um, uh, this wasn't uh, uh, taking a decal, a cheap decal, and putting it on a T-shirt and saying, there you go, now you're a fan. <laughs> um, uh, this was about um, uh, uh, immersing you in the world, giving you more of the stuff you love. And, and that sincerity and that seriousness was something that really, really uh, uh, took hold of me and has informed everything uh, that I've done. If, if you like the content that I'm working on, I want to make sure that your every encounter with that content or aspects of that story world um, is respectful both of the story world and of your time and your money. Um, that was not the licensing and, and uh, manufacturing model. That wasn't the media extension model. When you loved Star Wars, you were stuck with droids yeah. <laughs> on, on, on cartoon shows yeah, and television or, or the Ewok adventure. And that was not <laughs> uh, living up to the standards of, of Star Wars. Um, look how, how the world has changed. And, um, and uh, you know, in some tiny way, I'm, I'm hoping that I had made those kinds of, of contributions to the thinking of these big companies to take these properties seriously um, and as, as a way to cultivate um, a very, very loyal and ardent fans. We, I was a big He-Man fan when I was, when I was a kid, and I, I loved you know, the Saturday morning cartoons. Uh, and then when you would buy the action figure, um, uh, you would get the comic book with the action figure that would give you sort of a, a tailored story for that action figure. And I loved that, and I thought it was a tremendous experience until I started to realize there were continuity issues between the, um, uh, between the comic book and the cartoon. And I remember as like 10-year-old Houston, that was like wildly frustrating uh, for me because I remember specifically I got Ram Man. And uh, Ram Man, there was a story in the comic book with Ram Man where he was at odds with man, with man at arms. Uh, and they were both good guys. And it was a it was like a devastating thing for me. These two, two good guys were, were feuding. But then I remember... Uh, anticipating the Saturday morning cartoon. And uh, when I watched it, it was as if that never happened. And that was a wildly frustrating thing for me as a kid. And I didn't really understand why that why that was. Uh, now, you know, you know, as an adult in the industry, I, I, I understand sort of the business model of it and why well, the, the difficulties of coordinating uh, that creative. But I remember from a fan perspective, wildly frustrating. Do you see the business model of, uh, of multi-platform entertainment uh, changing to be able to uh, accommodate continuity. Oh, one hundred percent. It's it's something that I have been an advocate of since entering into the formal uh, uh, entertainment industry. Um, uh, when um, 
uh, when we worked on video games and comic books at Valiant and, and Acclaim Entertainment in the 90s, um, I, I pushed so hard for there to be um, uh, a, a kind of continuity in between these uh, different media, uh, uh, both comic books and video games, as well as uh, the web. And um, uh, that was enormously difficult to do because there was just no incentive for anybody to, to care about it. Um, and, um, and, and there wasn't any thought put to it. And certainly they weren't going to spend money uh, working with uh, writers that they were paying on the comic books to, to actually uh, write the dialogue in the video game and, and things like that. I, I actually kind of had to, to sneak and do it myself. <laughs> <laughs> I worked on Magic the Gathering. Magic the Gathering was a trading card game, still is to this day. It's a, sure. an evergreen uh, uh, brand. Um, but back then, um, uh, I, I wanted the comic books to describe the world of Dominaria, the world depicted in the cards. And, um, and that was fine. Uh, Wizards of the Coast liked that idea. But um, uh, my own company was not terribly incentivized to, to build a website filled with the lore and, and the, the, the various uh, things that I couldn't squeeze into the comic books or the magic video game. And, um, uh, and, and I had an intern <laughs> put together the website uh, oh, wow. and, and um, for, for free. And, and the, the damn thing crashed uh, from so much interest. And, and that began to kind of prove the, the point that, that fans were actually interested in the lore and in the continuity of, of these story worlds. Um, uh, and that's the ethos that I brought to the work that we did with the Walt Disney Company and with 20th Century Fox and, and uh, Sony Pictures. Um, uh, the, the fact that, that um, uh, uh, fans could, could respect this sort of thing. But there were a lot of challenges along the way. What has been the most rewarding thing that you've worked on uh, in, your, in your career? Wow. Yeah, big question. I'm curious though. You've worked on so much. Sure, there there are uh, there are three different kinds of of uh, things that are were were just stunning and and wonderful, um, and they they continue to deliver those rewards after after all these years. Um, uh, being able to to uh, write my own comic books and be paid for the first time the kinds of money that I, I couldn't have imagined as a kid uh, for the Magic the Gathering stuff and, and build that story world, have my own intellectual property become uh, a, a multi-platform story world was a dream come true. So Magic the Gathering was just awesome. My name was on it and, and oh, all, all awesome. that sort of thing. It's cool. Um, uh, 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 the, the, the second time that happened was with Mattel and the Hot Wheels uh, brand um, working on Hot Wheels World Race and uh, Highway 35 and and all the spinoffs and sequels and prequels and sequels that um, that that entailed and that was not as rewarding at the time but 20 years later the it's the number one uh, uh, fan response that I get today uh, emails posts wow. on social media and so forth because they're th those kids grew up 
and and are, are coming to thank me and, and Starlight Runner for creating this this thing that that was like filled their childhood. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> and and that is that is truly truly awesome. But the the big the number three and 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 certainly the one that had the greatest impact on my career was Avatar, um, uh, working uh, with James Cameron and John Landau, uh, with my team on the set of of Avatar, um, uh, and uh, and having that level of uh, interaction, influence, and um, and support from that that production. Uh, was was just fantastic, and and our uh, Starlight Runner took off like a, a gunshot after that. Fantastic. When, uh, when, when for, question for all of you guys, or for all of us to think about with fan communities. Um, speaking of Avatar, I really I really loved uh, the movie Avatar. Big fan of it. From the, I, I love the story. I, I love uh, the cinematography. Um, just the whole of it, you know, was just really intriguing to me. But um, I don't see the, and maybe I'm wrong on this, the fan community being as strong as the Trekkies, uh, the, the Star Wars guys who line up three days in, in advance um, outside. And, uh, but, but, and I'm not, I'm not disrespecting that, right? So I'm, I'm wondering with all of us thinking about what are those, components is there a formula is there something that you do jeff um every time to have at least the opportunity or the potential to create a fandom like some of the other ones that are bigger than avatar even though avatar was this big cinematic uh creation i, I hope that question makes sense to you guys oh sure sure and guess what we're going to talk dirt because right. Avatar doesn't belong to 20th Century Fox anymore. Avatar belongs to Disney. So yeah. I can uh, speak ill <laughs> of, of, of the past. Um, uh, when, when we read the, the screenplay, the, the draft screenplay uh, to Avatar, and, um, uh, and then began to explore the uh, pre-production materials um, uh, during the initial uh, uh, phase where where we uh, absorb brand essence, where we absorb this the core messaging yeah. of the 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 story world, so that we can help with the transmedia. Um, uh, we became uh, concerned that um, uh, not enough was being done to set the stage for fandom. Um, uh, we we were absolutely convinced that this was going to be huge, that Avatar was going to hit. It contained all of the archetypes and aspirational drivers that would rivet um, uh, people and the visuals and so forth were just going to be fabulous. So um, uh, it was a part of our transmedia strategy with 20th Century Fox uh, to cultivate fans and, and the way that you do in the run-up to uh, a, a major motion picture, a movie that we believed uh, would earn uh, hundreds of millions of dollars, if not break a billion, <laughs> we, were, we even underestimated that, yeah. um, uh, was to set the stage philosophically. Um, uh, Avatar has a core system of wisdom 
uh, as does Star Wars, as does the Marvel Cinematic Universe, as does the Harry Potter universe. And, and, and that ethos, uh, that system of wisdom needed to be prepared and, and woven into every aspect of the communication of the brand, the communication of the story world. And um, uh, uh, frankly, that was going to cost a little money. Um, uh, a, a tiny fraction, you know, somebody's lunch compared to uh, everything else that was yeah. being spent on the property. But unfortunately, the uh, powers that be uh, at 20th Century Fox said, no, no, we're not going to do that. Mm. Uh, we're not going to uh, uh, communicate in a transmedia fashion uh, what the essence of the story is about. It just was not interesting to them. Uh, and mm. and it was going to be difficult to do it because, of course, no, uh, James Cameron did not want to give away uh, any details of the story and, and, and so forth beforehand. But even still, uh, we, we had, uh, I thought, would, what would be an airtight plan uh, to indoctrinate fans and, um, and then to support fans after the movie was done. And and this was the most critical error, I think, that 20th Century Fox made. And this was despite uh, requests from James Cameron and John Landau. Um, uh, 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 they wanted for fans to have something to hold on to after the movie was uh, finished. And they were just, the, the studio felt that they had spent enough money and they were not going to spend a penny more. And, and so the uh, cultivation, uh, validation and celebration of the fans uh, was uh, was just not a part of the uh, of of the formula, and that was enormously frustrating uh, for all of us. Mm. And um, and it, it's truly one of the reasons, uh, one of the two I think two big reasons why uh, uh, Avatar did not have a larger cultural footprint. Uh, the other reason was that I, I felt that the interactive uh, uh, campaign, uh, the, the video games were, were not done well enough. Right. Uh, they, um, they, they should have been better. And had they have been better, uh, the franchise could have supported itself in, uh, uh, on video game consoles for quite some time. Sure. Yeah. I imagine, um, I'm thinking about the, the possibilities with avatar with how well it did. And if we could have continued in, like you said, you have this thing that you've mentioned twice as, as respecting the fans and starting with that. That does something right there because if you carry Avatar into the now, I can picture uh, the, the the fans. I mean, I know I'd want to to create your own emoji, Bitmoji, whatever. How do you look in an Avatar and having that interaction on social media? I mean, think about the things that are developed. If you would have respected that fan base in the beginning and put all of those things in place. Uh, tons of, of potential uh, just by respecting the fans first. Well, do you uh, think going the, back to the, the 70s? Go do you ahead, think go that ahead. Disney will do it differently? I mean, do you think that Disney, you know, with, with what they understand from Star Wars and Marvel, uh, now under the Disney banner, do you think the next wave of Avatar films will have a different approach or a different strategy that goes along with it? There's no question about it. Um, uh, they will. And, um, and my hope, however, it is that um, uh, Disney will have learned some lessons in, in terms of dealing with fans 
um, uh, from the, the, the bumps in the road uh, with Star Wars. Sure. Um, uh, you have to, it, 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 it's funny, um, uh, 10 years ago or so, um, there was simply just very little regard for fans. Right. Uh, fans were, were nerds. They comprised a very small portion of your potential audience, and they really didn't have that big a voice, um, which, of course, uh, the entire opposite is, is going on today. So now, instead of ignoring them, fans are, are a, a group that, that some companies actually fear. Hmm. Uh, um, if you if you piss off the fans, um, uh, it doesn't take very many of them to make trouble for you, yep. and um, uh, and and so uh, uh, that atmosphere of antagonism, which believe me, fans can be antagonistic. I, I first started seeing fan antagonism in the early 1990s on comic book bulletin boards. Oh wow! Yep. <laughs> you, you know. Um, uh, they used to write letters to Valiant Comics, and I used to be the guy who opened up the letters <laughs> and, and edited them and assigned them to, to the comic books. And, um, and most of them were pretty sweet, you know, some, some complaints here and there, but they, they were fans. They loved uh, these characters and so forth. On those boards, you know, at, where, through America Online and, and, and so forth, uh, with, with the veneer of anonymity, right? Yeah. You could say anything you wanted, and suddenly um, it was getting kind of extreme, you know. And and I was I was shocked. I thought, wow! I thought we loved this stuff. Now here you are uh, uh, saying these terrible things about my comic book, <laughs> um, and um, and of course um, uh, uh, that was the seed for the kind of of extreme uh, uh, culture that we are seeing, the polarized culture that we're seeing today. Sure. Um, uh, uh, the, um, uh, the, the key, by the way, in addressing, uh, that sort of thing, which I learned back then, um, uh, was that all they really want to, to be is heard, right. uh, mm -hmm. listening, uh, to fans, uh, acknowledging them, uh, being able to, um, uh, take the guff, um, which is not personal. It's just them venting. Um, and uh, and addressing what you can discern as their actual concerns underneath all the bluster um, sure. was uh, was something that allowed for me to uh, to develop fan bases for the projects that I worked on mm. uh, because I was communicating directly with fans through email and AOL posts and, and things like that um, and um, and that was very difficult to get my bosses um, and and ultimately my clients when I was at Starlight Runner. It was hard to get them to understand the power of that and the positive uh, uh, underpinning of of that kind of activity. Wow. No, I thought it was interesting. Um, you mentioned kind of in your triage phase of Avatar, um, kind of assessing what you had there and kind of that there's a formula to it, you know? Um, and I remember when we first started, uh, finding out about you when we were developing our transmedia process, you know, and we, we were reading, Hey, look at this guy. He's, he's selling these mythology books to the, <laughs> to the studios for their, their properties. Like, wow. So there's, there's a deliverable here, you know, cause we were trying to figure out how we are developing our stuff. Um, you know, that was back when we, 
had we were going to board game uh conventions and we had this board game fury it was this multi-platform uh like fighter game and uh we were getting a lot of good responses and then people were saying hey you know you guys should you guys should uh, turn this into a movie you know and so we were in the process of writing a script and um actually uh the fox executive that was developing with us was on our was on a couple shows back um and at that time we were developing okay what what's our deliverable look like uh to to these guys and um so we we were taking some inspiration from what you were doing back then oh, and so how are you when you're when you're building in you know consideration for the fans and how to really give them what they want um what's what's that process look like and and how do you flesh all that out to make sure you're you're accommodating everything um i i would say the um the first 10 years of, of Starlight Runner uh, were, were teaching years um, in, in so far as, as um, uh, the, the concentration on the mythology document. Sure. Was, that was a big deal for us because uh, what we were really telling uh, these big studios w- was um, uh, respect your own intellectual property. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, put it in a beautiful uh, book, a tome, right? With leather on the cover and, and full color uh, photographs and every single character location and creature should be, you know, thoroughly described in there. Uh, and, and the entire chronology of your universe uh, uh, should be listed in there. Uh, why? Because we want you to, to, to take ownership of, of the thing that you own, right? You're spending hundreds of millions of dollars on this intellectual property. Why would you uh, call in a essentially a freelance work for hire dude to come and 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 take that precious sure. billion dollar property and do whatever the hell he thinks he wants to do with it? Yeah. <laughs> right. This yeah. is my take on your uh, uh, property. You know, I have every respect for uh, brilliant directors and, and writers. Um, uh, we, can't, we can't move without them. Uh, however, um, uh, I, as the owner of this property, am obliged to understand fundamentally what works and, and what defines this property, what the essential ethos of this property is, the wisdom of this property. Mm. Who is Jack Sparrow? If you come here and tell me Jack Sparrow is a pirate in the traditional sense of a pirate, meaning he is bloodthirsty and he slits the throats of innocent people and he rapes and pillages, I will tell you, please see your way to the door. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I don't want you to damage my brand. Um, And yet, when we worked on Pirates of the Caribbean, there were people, uh, uh, there was talent uh, in in places around the world uh, creating content where Jack behaved that way. Mm. Um, uh, uh, And and we have to say, despite the fact that we have deep respect for that creator, we have to say, listen, (laughs) um, there's a document here. That, that tells you who this character genuinely is. 
and he's not that. <laughs> right. So uh, unless you give us an extraordinary explanation for how he he's changed to become that temporarily, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, you have to stop. Do, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. So, so um, uh, uh, I, I think, in fact, if there's any little gift we left behind with the Walt Disney Company, it was the, the notion of centralizing the story world, not the screenplay, not the movie, right. but the story world um, had to be uh, uh, centralized and placed above the interests of any individual at the company. Hmm. We serve these mythologies, right? Yeah. Um, uh, and, um, and this document is a memorial a memoriam to to that service uh this is what it is i will come back and update that damn thing every year if you need me to um sure. but um uh we, we are in service to these mythologies and uh, and disney has taken that to heart and that's where you get um uh the marvel cinematic universe not just in the terms of the vision of kevin feige but in the terms of of how um, uh, the company has morphed itself to leverage the intellectual property across all of its divisions and all media platforms. Sure. That's awesome. Uh, we've also been kind of reading about how lately you've been honing in on, you know, the Joseph Campbell hero, hero's journey, collective journey stuff. So how is, how's that informing kind of your process and how you're, you're changing it now, uh, these years later. Um, well, it's it's uh, it's really interesting. Um, you know, when uh, when I was young, and I would uh, uh, see these kind of uh, uh, enjoy these epic uh, uh, Japanese anime and and uh, and these big fantasy novels and and movies, science fiction movies. Um, uh, you have to remember that I I was brought up in a in a tough neighborhood. <laughs> um, uh, there was a lot of fighting going on. Um, uh, violence was something that um, that was kind of a reality uh, for me and for the uh, the, the people that um, that surrounded me, and um, and so I knew what that felt like. I, I knew uh, that that what it was that I was reading about was actually deeply unpleasant and not desirable. <laughs> um, so I, um, I, I always wished that there, were a, there was another way. Could, uh, uh, could these uh, conflicts in these stories be resolved in, in ways that, that somehow were not ultimately about murdering the bad guy, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and, um, and uh, uh, it, it was something that I had always toyed with uh, uh, somehow over the years. And it was difficult, of course, because we're trained as, as storytellers to introduce conflict that's, you know, was polarized, that, that smashed against each other until somebody won or someone was clever enough to, to, uh, 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 to, to, to become the dominant factor, the hero. Um, and, um, uh, and, and so it was. It was hard. So the the thing that um, um, uh, that that kind of started snapping me out of it 
was actually at the Disney theme parks when we were uh, looking at them and thinking about ways for people to enjoy the parks in different ways. Um, uh, I love the idea of role play. I love the idea of, of going into the park and not kind of leaning back and, and having fun with these rides and attractions, uh, but to actually be, I don't know, like a character in, in the park. Um, and that the park was a world, an extension of the story world of, of the intellectual property that I loved so much. Um, and, um, and we saw this a little bit with the Pandora, the world of Avatar. Uh, 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 attraction, which we did a little consultation on, and um, and and I began to talk with uh, uh, the Disney parks and resorts uh, people about uh, the idea of Star Wars being uh, a, a piece of the Star Wars universe, just kind of landed <laughs> in yeah. in the uh, in the park, and we'd be able to to visit it and have fun there. Now the trick there is. Um, uh, you don't want people to run around shooting each other or clobbering each other with plastic lightsabers. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, so how do you tell a story that involves hundreds or thousands of people and uh, is nonviolent, um, you know, and, and still is thrilling and interesting and individualized? And, um, and that helped to galvanize my thinking about um, uh, a, a story world that's really systemic, mm. uh, a, a system with flaws in it. And we, as characters, represent different aspects of that system. And our job is to somehow reconcile so that the system can be repaired. Because if the system's not repaired, it can start to hurt a lot of people. We can be damaged by it. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So, so, um, so that became the model of, of collective journey. The, the idea that, yeah, we could still have conflicts, but ultimately we are going to have to start juxtaposing our thinking on, on, with one another in order to come up with uh, uh, solutions that will ultimately benefit uh, uh, most of, of the people. And then we started to see that systemic storytelling in uh, uh, Game of Thrones, yeah. um, uh, in Orange is the New Black, um, in, in the movie Arrival. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it, it just was starting to pop up everywhere. And also, of course, we started to see it in, in real life, the, the systemic uh, uh, story, the mega stories that, that were go unfolding on social media. Yeah. That were resulting in in movements like Black Lives Matter um, or the Me Too movement. Um, uh, there were no individual heroes there. Um, uh, there were just people who who had something to say, step forward to say it, and then kind of step back and and let the the flow of narrative, um, uh, uh, you know, manifest into reality. And that was really, really fascinating. And, and this is um, uh, what I've been writing about for the past few years, collective yeah. journey storytelling.
Yeah, I think your I think your work on collective journey is really really super interesting. I mean, uh, uh, so I I teach um, I teach uh, transmedia design and transmedia storytelling at the Los Angeles Film School and the Art Center of Design in Pasadena, and uh, uh, you, your your 2010, I believe it's 2010 TED Talk is always sort of a required viewing of, of the students in those classes. Oh, thank and, you. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the big takeaway from that one, I think it's really interesting how you explain transmedia sort of through your life story and your origin story. Um, but uh, one of the big takeaways is just how like uh, what a deep dude you are. Like you're you're like a this interesting transmedia philosopher. Right. And uh, the, the students always remark about sort of the deep thinking behind it and but the part of the, the video uh that they love the part of the talk they love is is the part at the end when you talk about sort of the the social responsibility when it comes to these models and they always respond to that in a really interesting way and i think that you know that that lends itself into what your current thinking of what you're doing with the collective journey and um so I, you know, I've over the years I've been reading your blog and and, and some you know, hearing your interviews about the collective journey, and I think it's interesting how you talk about the 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 sophistication of the audience changing to where uh, sort of the the um, you know the the very basic moralistic stories of good versus evil they're starting to give way into a little bit more nuanced uh, perspectives, right? And we and we seen we've seen that in in, in media before to where you know. Uh, um, uh, the Vietnam movies uh, of John Wayne, where and all the Vietnamese were all a very certain way, and they were all the bad, and it was not nuanced at all. That gave way to more nuanced thinking, such as Apocalypse Now and things like that, right? Correct. Sure. So you start to see culture changing and the sophistication of the audience change along with that. And so uh, one of the things that so I chose a Star Wars background. Uh, I'm, I'm a big Star Wars fan, and uh, uh, and one of the most interesting things that I see in fan culture and in fan communities, one, I think that the Star Wars fan community is one right now just very, I want to say toxic, but maybe that's uh, it's 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 not a super happy place, right? At least at least on Twitter, uh, it's not. And because it there, it, it's it's as if Ryan Johnson and Kathleen Kennedy threw a grenade into fan culture with with the Last Jedi, and um, I I. For you know, to, most to the most uh, to the consternation of the people I talk to, usually uh, in everyday life, I love the Last Jedi. I thought I think the Last mm-hmm. Jedi is a masterpiece. And um, uh, one the, one of the things I love about it is sort of the the interesting nuance of Kylo Ren, and uh, and I feel like that Kathleen Kennedy and Ryan Johnson really tried to push Star Wars forward into a more nuanced. Uh, storytelling mode, uh, but the fans, or at least a large sect of the fans, really kind of rejected that. They didn't like the the interesting nuance approach to, to, uh, approach to Luke Skywalker. Uh, they wanted him to be the video game hero, right? And the vi- and they wanted Kylo Ren to be the video game bad guy. And uh, and it it seems like there's still a, a part of fandom that likes the basic. And, um, you know, as, as, as a storyteller myself and as a fan, I like the nuance, but it seems like there's a, there's, they're still holding on to that, that moralistic good versus evil approach. What, what do you think about the last Jedi? Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wrote about this, um, as a, as an adjunct to my collective journey, uh, uh blog, um, I, I called it the deconstruction of Star Wars, mm. uh, and um, uh, uh, y- you know, uh, I, I, I think that um, uh, 
with with enormous respect to uh, Lucasfilm and the work of uh, Kathleen Kennedy, um, there there was a mistake made, um, and the mistake is not the obvious one. the The mistake was that um, uh, uh, I believe that that uh, uh, Kennedy was a uh, an autorist. Mm-hmm. She believed in the power of the director. Right. And um, and what she did was she said, well, here is this uh, fabulous intellectual property. Um, everyone who's anyone would dream of of telling their story within the context of this intellectual property. So have at it. And uh, and what happened was that uh, that Star Wars was parsed out. Yeah. Um, not just to uh, Abrams and, and Johnson, but to uh, 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 Trevorrow and, and uh, yeah. uh, Josh Trank and, and all these people, um, uh, the, the guys, uh, uh, Miller and Lord, who, who uh, uh, were on uh, Solo. Yeah. And they were all, of course, uh, spinning their own take on, on Star Wars. Um, and, um, and while I think there's uh, obviously room for that, and, and we see uh, stylistic flourishes and individuation in the Marvel uh, movies. Um, uh, if you don't have that fundamental mythology, if you have not worked out your arc, sure. particularly in a trilogy in advance, um, you're going to run into trouble. Right. You know? So the, the shock of The Last Jedi did not emerge, I believe, out of the single film. It emerged out of how disjointed it was from mm. the first film. The first film gave us no preparation for, for what would happen in the second film. The second film uh, uh, did not have any particular concern <laughs> for the first film. Sure. Um, um, uh, what, what Johnson had to say was breathtaking and and um, and and truly actually a shift to uh, from hero's journey to collective journey right. mentality 100%. in in many many respects, um, uh, uh, but um, uh, it, it was done in a vacuum. Mm. So so um, uh, if that's the case, um, uh, okay. Even at that juncture, here I am at Lucasfilm going, wow. This movie's kind of a kick in the nuts. <laughs> yeah, sure. You know, uh, uh, fans could perceive this as a subversion of all the things that they love. So then the conversation would be if, if Starlight Runner were at the table, the, co- right. the, the conversation would be let's start a conversation <clears throat> about this with those fans, with the fans who are going to, to react uh, strongly. We saw hints of those fans. With regard to Ray and the depiction of Ray in the first film, so we know they're there. Yeah. Um, how do we uh, address those fans and make them feel heard, and make them feel prepared for what it is that they're going to see? And um, uh, um, and of of course, not only was that not done. Um, uh, what um, what happened was that there was overt antagonism. Mm, you're right. Um, uh, so, so your your deplorables, you know, um, yep. y- y- you fans suck, and you're in the tiny minority, 
and go away. Yeah. You know, Star Wars is not for you. It, that that was what they felt. Whether or not it was meant by by Lucasfilm or Disney to communicate that, or the actors, who sure. it, it's just bizarre to me that that actors would would uh, not behave in concert with a with a studio or take cues from a studio. Studio didn't give cues, by the way. Sure. Um, and and uh, and we had this uh, this difficulty, which, by the way, started as minor. Uh, but then, when when uh, 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 Lucasfilm waged war, which is not listening to their own Yoda dude, <laughs> war is not make one great. Yeah, you know right. they waged war, um, which inflamed uh, uh, confirmation bias was was hit, yep. and uh, and suddenly uh, uh, there's a, a kind of civil war in the Star Wars fandom. Uh, going on, which was yeah. really, uh, I think, deeply unfortunate and cost money. Sure, uh, because that impacts your licensing, your merchandising, uh, the the global goodwill, um, uh, 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 mass media coverage, and and so forth. It, um, it it's not conducive, and right. um, and of course, um, uh, you, you have to backpedal a little bit with the third film, which. Um, uh, which I thought was unfortunate because it it, it did not uh, it played too safely with the incredible concepts of the the second film. Sure, um, felt like they tried to overcorrect. Maybe like they 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 went back into the other ditch, right? There uh, you go, a little yeah. bit. Yeah. So uh, the only uh, only thing I hated, um, I, I liked it, but the only thing I hated was super minor. But there may be some people out there. Let me know, people, if you agree with me. Me and my daughter hated that Finn. Ended up in the friend zone at the end. He got a hug. <laughs> what the heck was yeah. all of that yeah. for? Yeah. And, you know, I was rooting for the brother, man. Come on. <laughs> and uh, they, they let me down with that one. But okay, that, that's just my immature that's rant. That's it. The, there was the, that, that is actually a, a, a fault of narrative design. Um, uh, you know, which if you want to see fantastic narrative design, look at those Marvel Cinematic Universe sure. movies where where they're thinking in for each movie, even the most minor detail has some uh, uh, structural impact on the rest of the work. It's like a yeah. fractal uh, yeah. uh, kind of narrative design. And of course, that wasn't the case. And, and then you get these kinds of dissatisfactions like with Finn. So I'll yeah. In regards to the collective journey, uh, uh, I, I think it's a, such an interesting concept. I'm I'm of the the mindset that as a Star Wars fan, that if you if you cr if you let the, the the audience and the fan base crowdsource a the, the next Star Wars film, it would be terrible, right? I think think if like you know if like giving fans complete control, uh, it, it, you know the, probably not the right way. But you got to find some balance, right, between between having them feel heard, having them feel you know it's almost like um, you know it, it, it's an interesting relationship. It's like having having a spouse, right, uh, uh, and figuring out a way forward. One of the questions that I have for you, just to get your take on when it when it comes to the collective journey, is is I don't think you're saying, or maybe I just ask, are you saying that when we're talking about the nuanced storytelling of good versus evil, you're not necessarily uh, proposing that there isn't good versus evil, just that we need to converse around that in a more nuanced fashion, right? 
Um, correct. The, um, the, the, the storytellers should have the right to, to designate whatever character, whatever it is that they feel. Um, I, I'm a a huge proponent of storytellers as artists and, and you're absolutely right. Uh, we, we can't, um, uh, kind of mass generate, uh, uh, great stories, uh, storytelling by committee, not so good. Um, uh, uh, however, um, if you take the systemic approach, then uh, then your your empathy for all the characters is felt because you understand that that uh, the the evil that's being perpetrated is being perpetrated because there is a, a flaw in the system. Sure. That, that that there is a a, a significant uh, a societal problem or family dynamic problem, uh, that there are underlying reasons uh, uh, why uh, uh, this dynamic and the relationship between these sets of characters is is uh, being the way that it's being, and um, and and so um, what happens is it becomes less about um, the the hero destroying uh the evil villain yeah um and 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 leaving behind a system that has not changed right because because in hero's journey think about all the the movies you've ever seen um uh the the bad guy gets it at, at the end but the the societal and systemic issues that produce that bad guy have have not even been dinged (laughs) you know um, uh, let me ask you about thanos because i think thanos is is a really interesting nuance to that question one of the in 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 some of my classes we we uh we talk about uh character alignment old D &D character alignment (laughs) sure and um and we talk about what characters are in what box and one of the things that uh you know there's 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 some easy ones right superman that's an easy one gandalf that's an easy one right whenever i throw out where's thanos where would you put thanos it's fascinating how half the about third of the class will 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 put him you know neutral evil uh and uh but a third of the class at least every single time uh make the argument that uh that he's neutral good and or that he's chaotic good and um uh that i think is such and then there's a third like that goes back and forth right um (laughs) but but the fact that i mean we look at what thanos does I mean, Thanos literally is 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 creating mass genocide, and um, but the nuance is that that he he believes he's the hero of his own story. He believes that he's doing it for the good of everybody else, and so you have these altruistic motivations, uh, uh, seemingly from his perspective, and 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 according to some people, that then makes the good what do you think i mean do we do we position thanos as evil based on the action or do we nuance it a little bit just simply based on his perspective of, of his motivation according in like through a, a collective journey lens what, what's your take sure 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 um it, it's funny in um uh, our our kind of mapping of the uh mega story uh, of the marvel cinematic universe um uh, we uh, we see the whole thing as uh, as very very similar to the uh, Japanese uh, rumination 
uh, about uh, atomic power and and the role of their society uh, after the Second World War. Um, uh, uh, and and you can see uh, in all those uh, giant monster movies uh, this kind of hand wringing. Well, you know, uh, here is the incarnation of our greatest fear. Here is the incarnation in Godzilla, uh, the the um, uh, the destructive force uh, of the uh, unleashing of the atom, um, and 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 we're grappling with it because we know that scientifically, um, uh, you know, atomic power can be quite a boon. Uh, uh, to us. And so Godzilla can be good. Godzilla right. can be our hero. Um, uh, but, you know, and then it, it, it kind of shifts in waves over the course of, of decades. Um, uh, Marvel, the MCU, is a response to 9-11. And, and so uh, the role of, of Thanos really is almost like this kind of uh, outside uh, amplifier, <laughs> Uh, over the the uh, the contentions of Tony Stark, yeah. um, so so really, all that Thanos is is showing us is the shadow side of of, of Stark. Sure. Um, you know, uh, someone who is willing to forego freedom um, uh, in order to to put the world in a cage <laughs> um, uh, to protect it. Um, uh, and, and use all of these uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, technological wonders uh, uh, to hyper monitor us and, and do all the things that that um, uh, uh, essentially puts us under lock and key. Um, uh, and and of course, due to flaws in in that system, wind up destroying us, sure. like Ultron and, and and that sort of thing. And, and here, here Thanos is writ large, a projection of of, uh, of Tony, and um, and uh, and so his role is vital because we need to see where it's all going to go, where it could all go, with uh, uh, under the auspices of doing something good, um, a terrible thing, Sokovia happens um half the universe could be uh, uh, wiped out in a wink what does that even mean to us we don't see that happen we don't need to see it happen because we know that that uh, this conflict between uh stark and and uh, steve rogers uh, could very well result in the uh, you know extermination of the human race or, or, or it'd be devastating and and so your assignation of good or evil on on Thanos is almost beside the point because mm. as long as he's um, uh, uh, taking that position within the systemic uh, of the collective journey narrative that's mm. going on over the course of you know a, a dozen or so movies, we're good to go. <laughs> yeah. Well, well just, so just officially, just for my classes, because I'm going to show them this video. What box would you put? Thanos in what would, you, <laughs> what would your what would your char- the character alignment be for Thanos in in D terms? Thanos does not lie, and he never does. He's mm. lawful evil. <laughs> I, love, I love it. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. Cool. That's gonna that's gonna squash a lot of debate. Uh, I think <laughs> that's good. I, I love I love Thanos. He was he was probably my favorite and antagonist because the layers there was emo- he emoted. It, it was really cool, and he was a strong like. 
kick-ass type of guy. It was, it, I, I loved him. Good. And yet a um, little bit mellow. A little bit. Yeah. I love. I loved his yeah. mellowness. Yeah. yeah. yeah <laughs> there was there was dimension. I love that. Yeah. Um, I have a, a question though, Jeff, and, and this helps the the small guy out there. I'm a I'm I'm a big fan of the David versus Goliath, and I want our audiences at all times to grow. And we have someone as respected as you on here. So I want uh, to ask you like an advice type question. Uh, my background, as you can see here, are my seven kids. And I know there's people out there uh, saying, how do I create a fan base when I don't have money, I have a project. And you know, my, my simple advice is do like me, go out and have seven kids. You got a built-in family, right? But maybe, you know, maybe someone just has a hard time dating. They're too shy. So that may not be practical. <laughs> um, but in, in all serious note, seriousness though, what would you tell uh, uh, the small guy, the independent guy who people aren't coming to them, giving them Ultraman, people aren't coming to them, giving them um, avatar in, in at one point you started small, you, you, no one knew you what have you. So, you know, there may be some key components or some key ingredients like yeah. with our yeah. brand of transmedia called Superstory, We talk about things like feeding the beast, which we can go into later, cross talk, getting talking to each other, creating higher archies and, and, and statuses. But what are the things that Jeff would say to an audience to say, Here's how, doing, here's how you can get some fans involved. Here's some simple things you can do sure. to start and then grow from there. Because you're doing coaching now, right? I mean, that's that's uh, one of the, which is which is super cool. So it's, it, this speaks exactly to I'm presuming the the advice that you give your coach. Your it coaches. is exactly uh, the the type of advice that I give, um, and um, and uh, you'll you'll give people ways to to reach me if they want uh, that that kind of of service. I'm glad to to provide it. So dangle uh, a little in, carrot in front of him. Give, give him a little in, carrot real in, quick. In, well, in, in this particular case, I'll talk about myself because your point is is uh, really well taken. Uh, I am the poster child for starting small, <laughs> um, and um, and and really, it, it is initially all about your personal super story, um, and and doing your best to crystallize uh, that that narrative. Um, we we start out with preconceived notions about how the world works. Those notions are fed to us by parents, teachers, friends, and and the media. And um, and it is I have to tell you, it's not necessarily true. <laughs> you, you know, the reality that we are raised in is a cage. Um, uh, uh, it is it is based on our perceptions of things and and based on on experiences that are limited because we're not super wealthy uh, hyper connected entertainment guys right um, so the the um, uh, I think one of the the big differences uh, for for me, someone coming out of a, a I'm I'm from the lower class, not the middle class. I'm I'm way down there, <laughs> um, but this thought in my head uh, about how story can be told, this thing that I loved, being able to move from one medium to the next and still enjoy things, um, and have it be consistent, be be validated. Uh, for my love for for this this narrative, that was 
uh, pure in me from fairly young, right? So I was in college thinking about this and thinking about um, how we can manifest this, right? And and in doing so, I had no wherewithal. I couldn't even shoot an, a little independent movie in, in the 1980s. So I, I wrote about it um, uh, based on my experiences playing games, uh, uh, role-playing games and, and stuff like that, right? How do you create a story world for your Dungeons & Dragons campaign? <laughs> um, how do you make that experience more immersive, more, more interactive for your players, right? Because um, I was doing that, and I had generated a fan base of five. <laughs> but boy, did they love my game, right? <laughs> they love like my it. game. And I love them for loving my game. Um, uh, you know, can I have seven? <laughs> can I have 10, uh, 15, 20 uh, uh, people? Um, and every time I, I attempted to do that, they'd come. You know, so so I started writing about it. So so the the key is is to earn fans by placing yourself in a situation where they can see you, and then having something to say, have something to say that's interesting and engaging and validates Good. their their uh, uh, their participation. Awesome. Um, we are in a world right now where that is immediately available free of charge. Um, you can set up a, a, you know, an outpost on Facebook or a blog or, or um, a, a website that contains your short stories and, sure. and so forth. Um, you can post on Webtoon with your comics and, 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 and so forth and, um, or, or um, DeviantArt. And, and, um, and suddenly there are people who, who show up, who, who like it, who you can charge with, with bringing more people yeah. um, and building yeah. uh, a, a base of operations. Uh, now, f flipping the script a little bit, as a person in the entertainment industry, when I'm looking for people I want to work with, new talent, um, you know what I do? Um, uh, I, I talk to my friends and, and say, who's up and coming? Who's cool? Wh whose work should I look at? And they'll, they'll say, they'll mention a name, right? But they won't send me their resume. And frankly, I don't want to see somebody's resume. Sure. Resumes are yesterday. Um, I, I say, send me a link. Okay. And, and, and I want two links. I want one link to their portfolio. Um, you know, whatever work it is that they were doing uh, or samples of it and, and things like that. I want to talk to the person. Mm. I want to see the portfolio. And then I want a link to their social media mm. um, uh, because I want to see what kind of person this is. Because if this person is a pain in the ass, right. I don't want to work with them. I don't care how talented they are. Right. Life is too short. Um, mm. and so I, I want to see whether this person's a goofball, whether this person can finish stuff. Sure. Because finishing is key. Yes. I don't care how brilliant you are. If you can't finish it, I'm not interested in you, right? So I want to see what, uh, and I want to look at their following. Who Who's interested in this person? Like it. And, and believe it or not, it's not how many people, right? Uh, it's, it's whether the people who are following you love you. 
mm. whether the people Good. are following you are really interested in what you have to say and can't wait for the next thing that you say, right? Uh, um, I, I have in all maybe 25, 30,000 followers. Mm. Um, but if you look at them, they're brilliant. They're industry professionals or they're uh, uh, people who, who truly uh, love what it is that I do and, and what it is that I talk about and I engage with them and, and that's all anyone needs to know. They, I'm hired, <laughs> right? Uh, that's what I'm going to do with you. So, so that's, does that make some kind of sense? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Travis? Some, some, some great nuggets in there, and, and I, and I pre- appreciate that. It's, it's just good for people are, are starving, not just for uh, entertainment, but they're starving for, you know, what's that little way out? And sometimes the advice that people get is not what they I- I expect. Uh, there was something you mentioned um, uh, in building fandom and going in and writing about every single uh, character and creating that book with the leather bound. What, that, what I heard right there is, wow, this, this whole super story transmedia thing is a lot of work. So you have to be passionate, you know? But, and sometimes people don't want to hear that. They're, they're looking for the quick way. So you've given some really great nuggets and I've been able to pull out of that. I'm hoping our audience was able to, to pull out things as, as well. Absolutely. I got one more question for you, Jeff, then we're going to let you go. Uh, sure. We're about an hour. Uh, so uh, we always do a mailbag at the end of our show. And uh, typically we have a video mailbag, but I just got a, uh, I got an email question for you from one of my students uh, at uh, Los Angeles Film School. Um, they, they say, uh, Jeff, this is from Sierra. Uh, Jeff, Professor Howard makes us read uh, your article the 10, um, 10 commandments on 21st century franchising. Uh, my question is, is there a practical difference between transmediating uh, story worlds for big sci-fi projects like Avatar and small real world stuff uh, set in a neighborhood or a town or a city? Um, so, Great question. Uh, question of scale, right? And that's something I get all the time. Uh, do the same story world principles apply? Do, do you approach it if you're just doing something small as, you know, the, the, the bigger stuff that you're dealing with? What do you think? Uh, well, we, we've dealt with this uh, a lot. You know, um, the, the clients on our, our website are, are tend to be the big guns, but, um, but we've dealt with documentary films and, and uh, small independent films um, and, uh, uh uh, content that isn't even you know movies that are like brands and, and things like that um, so this process is scalable um, those ten commandments uh, were you know predominantly written for you know big studio uh, properties but uh, so much of it applies when you scale it when you, when you scale it down and um, and it all really starts with um, uh, uh, the, 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 the essence, the central, uh, messaging. Um, uh, this is the thing that, that makes or breaks any transmedia implementation. What is it that you have to say? And, um, and do you understand the nature of the platforms on which you're saying them? Hmm. Um, uh, because if you're treating, uh, an interactive platform like just another television screen, you're not using that platform to the best of its ability. Sure. Look at look at Quibi, yeah. right? right. Um, uh, Quibi uh, is is just a, a network 
it's like a, a, a cable channel. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, um, and yet I'm supposed to enjoy Quibi on my telephone, on my, on my uh, mobile hypercomputer thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it doesn't do anything that my phone is capable of, of giving to me. Right. And so my interaction with that content, I can't even project it onto my television. <laughs> right. um, uh, so I, you know, um, and so I'm immediately bored with that and I'm moving on. Um, uh, and, um, and so that is not, uh, uh, conducive to transmedia storytelling. Um, and, and so that essence and, and the understanding of the platforms are all you really need to, to start off. The, the bigger picture stuff is, is, uh, you know, throw those ingredients into your taste. Got it. Got it. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jeff. It's been an awesome hour. I feel like we could go for, uh, but I really appreciate you and your time and your wisdom uh, and uh, really hope that uh, we have another chance to talk um, again soon. Been a, been sure. a lot of information. Let me give you ways to, to reach out to me uh, for you and your audience. Uh, uh, you have a special audience. There, there are people who either are practicing uh, transmedia storytelling or, or aspire to with these big story worlds. Uh, so uh, uh, perhaps I can I can help somewhere along the way. Uh, my Twitter is at Jeff underscore Gomez. Uh, uh, you can reach me in LinkedIn. It's pretty uh, uh, easy to find me there, Jeff Gomez. Um, uh, Facebook is uh, Facebook slash transmedia. But again, Jeff Gomez, type it in and, and you, you find me. And um, slrlifestory.com uh, mm -hmm. uh, is my uh, coaching service where I um, uh, meet weekly. I have a, a little curriculum uh, and, uh, and work with people to help them level up in terms of breaking into the entertainment industry or doing better in the entertainment industry. Um, and uh, you can go to slrlifestory.com. During the uh, pandemic, I am, uh, we have all lowered our prices significantly so that we can speak with more uh, a kind of people uh, who are, are still outside of the entertainment industry and might not be able to afford the giant prices that are on that website. <laughs> so, um, so feel free to email me directly if that's your interest, Jeff at Starlight Runner. Dot com. Do not send me your screenplays or your <laughs> five gigabyte story worlds. Yeah. <laughs> I am not allowed to look at them. <laughs> yeah, no, I love it. I love it. Hey, hey, Jeff, have you heard anything in the rumblings about, uh, remember the old karate flicks like the Shaolin and Wu-Tang? And I was a huge fan of that as a kid. As was know, I. Early 80s. And, and it's disappeared. And maybe I'm just not searching enough, but. I want, I, as a fan, I wish someone would create, like I, when Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, that came back out, I, I, I took my dad, he fell asleep, but I was, I was dude, come on, what the heck, you fall, you fall asleep in a movie? But I was just wondering if you had heard anything, because you, you know, you bring him back to Ultraman, that has an older audience, and yeah. I used to w get into that stuff, so that I was a real big karate guy. I'm like, I wonder if they're going to do something for those fans like myself and bring stuff back. Um, we, we've seen rumblings. Um, uh, I, I used to go to the, uh, uh quadruple free features of, of martial arts films in, uh, uh, Kung Fu movies in, in Times Square. I yeah. loved them. 
because they had these rich mythologies and, and in some cases were interconnected and, and you know, Shaolin was something that you saw in, in, in uh, several movies, Wu-Tang, uh, all, all that sort of thing. Um, uh, uh, one of the heartbreakers for us was a an extended flirtation with the Shaw brothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know the Shaw brothers? Yeah. They, they, uh, mm-hmm. Wonderful uh, uh, kung fu movies from China, and and we um, uh, we talked to them a long time about bringing back all of those properties and creating an interconnected uh, oh. uh, universe, and. Um, uh, we couldn't make the numbers work, un- unfortunately. Mm. Um, uh, and believe me, we we lowered the price because <laughs> I wanted to be involved. But they, they, they just yeah. it, it, no, it, yeah. it was going to be a lot of work, a, a lot, um, and we couldn't make it work. Um, but um, uh, we see a a kung fu series uh, on its way uh, back to television. Um, uh, 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 Bruce Lee's estate is is uh, developing lots of, of new content, yeah. and um, and uh, we're we're seeing experiments with uh, superhero and martial arts worlds um, in uh, China and Southeast Asia nice. uh, that uh, I think will eventually uh, find their way uh, here. Uh, so fingers crossed. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Jeff. Right. I appreciate it. Thank you for your time. Thanks, uh, everybody get in, get in touch with Jeff. Uh, good man to follow. Good man to connect with. We'll talk Brad, to you. Houston, Travis, thank you so much. This was tremendous. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you for inviting us to your Thanks home. <laughs> you got it. Please don't forget to subscribe. Rate and review.